Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. That's the second time it's gone off. They never got home, they never got home, they never got home, those, those, those boys. That's... Yeah, they have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I'm the World Cup. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. What are you doing down here? You're showing me, man. You are very welcome to Second Captain's Football at the Irish Times as Liverpool take over the title race after yesterday's victory against Manchester City. I was listening to a Radio 5 Live phone in this morning, Ken. Mm. And uh, the theme of it, well, I, I caught the tail end of it. Yeah. The theme had appeared to have been that this would be a popular win. For neutrals, for everybody. Liverpool, oh, yeah. Liverpool, the plucky underdog as they are now compared to what they were 20 years ago, putting it up to the... Little Liverpool. Yeah, little Liverpool, putting it up to the wealthy big boys from Manchester and from London as well. One Liverpool caller had clearly rammed home the reasons why it would be so popular to everybody outside of Liverpool and he had made such In an impact no uncertain terms. that they got this guy on again at the end. I was probably listening to the last 15, 20 minutes and so they brought this guy back and said, uh, hey, buddy. Um, You've you, whipped the nation into the a nation. frenzy. We'll leave the last word to you, <laughs> which is probably quite a good idea. Uh, he reiterated his position, said that everybody should love Liverpool for winning the league and he did make the point that if we win this time, we'll dominate for the next 20 years. Mm. And I, I think most Liverpool fans, I, I, I don't think you could begrudge Liverpool this title win at all. They've been amazing, but if they were to finish it off, but I I think most of us would just take this one rather than worrying about dominating for the next 20 years. I think... Those aren't the kind of guys who whip up a radio phone in, though, though. Okay. No, that's Go, true. Though. Now, if you, if you called up and said, I would take not winning the league for the next 25 years in exchange for just this one time. Oh, there's one. Would I might, that... I might get a few tweets in to see if people want to tweet in about that. Would that work? If you're a Liverpool supporter, would you take another 20, 25 years Look, not you, winning the league for this one season? That's, no, you surely wouldn't. When you get right down to it, do you really need to win the league more than once every generation or so? Twice would be nice for most people. Twice a generation. But it's like, you know, once you... Uh, it's like a drug, Owen. They constantly uh, compare it to a drug. And the thing about a drug is, sure, it might feel great the first time you take it, but then the next time, you need to take that little bit more. And uh, if the supply of the drug is cut off, you start to feel really bad. And, uh, yeah, that's the, that's the drug metaphor, all right. 
going by that logic, Liverpool shouldn't just should not try to win the league at all, even this year. You should you should really stay away from winning league titles. Stay away, you know, stay it's away the from these ex- sure. extremes of emotion. Try to cruise along. Look at what Arsene Wenger is doing, cruising along at a safe distance from glory, uh, but at the same time, uh, respectably, uh, you know, well. Although, obviously, Arsenal are outside the top four at a dangerously late uh, moment of the season. Um, but, you know, maybe that's maybe that's the best way to do it. I mean, the Arsenal fans seem to seem not to like it anyway. Um, maybe that's the thing. You do need you need one every so often. And then, ah, you know, it takes the edge off the, the long years of, of, uh, of pain. Time for Ken Early's report on sport. Um, so I guess at this at this point in the season, it's time to revisit where we're where we are in the conversation. What conversation? The conversation that Brendan Rodgers said he hoped Liverpool would be in, still involved in about the, at the about the title. Um, all the Premier League managers sitting at a long table, having a frighteningly expensive dinner, and uh, drinking a few glasses of wine, and how things are going. And it turns out that Brendan Rodgers who, to be honest, at the beginning, people weren't even sure whether they wanted to be the, the one who was caught sitting next to him, is, is monopolizing the conversation at the table with a stream of zingers, the likes of which nobody had, had ever thought possible. Like Everything that comes out of Brendan Rodgers' mouth is some kind of wildy and quip. Uh, or He's just got incredible quotability at this stage. Nobody can keep up with him. Um, Jose Mourinho has... has disturbed some of the the other uh, people at the table by going to the toilet and coming back made up like the Joker from Batman and now speaks only in uh, essentially speaks like the Javier Bardem character Anton Chigurh in No Country for All Men saying sinister things like what's the most you ever lost on a coin toss to the person sitting next to him you know he's saying do you have any idea how crazy you are do you mean the nature of this conversation? I mean the nature of you. So uh, this is, it's disturbing. I mean, what is Mourinho trying to do? Is Jose Mourinho not more like Oliver Reed on that Channel 4 <laughs> programme? I think both of us watched a clip last year where it was one of these, I can't remember the exact name of it, but it was very dark and set, uh, very late night, everyone swilling wine. There was no issue with that. Everybody was allowed to get tipsy and they were talking away. The idea being that you're just eavesdropping on this conversation happens yeah. to be going on. Oliver Reed got a little too tipsy. Yeah. And he... Uh, was quite obnoxious to a lot of people, made a lot of enemies, and there were only about five or six people there. Yeah. Ultimately, he was asked to leave. Well, he offered, should I just leave? And yeah. they said, please do, Oliver. You're boring us now. Yeah. And then he steps away from the set and <laughs> stumbles <laughs> off. It's just when you becoming the boring guest of the day. No, that's Alan Pardew. Oh. Uh, Alan, Alan Pardew's the one who, who uh, has, has got a little bit out of control. Uh, and started uh, started fronting up to, to people, you know, uh, and spilling a glass of wine at one point. Um, so the whole, the, the situation really, I mean, obviously Arsene Wenger has been crying. He's been up in the bathroom crying because uh, Jose Mourinho insulted him. Um, uh, Manchester United have gone home early, you know. They say that they're actually, uh, they're off the drink for the second half of the year. Uh, or the, for the first half of the year. They're just going to take it up till midsummers and see how, see how they get on. But you know, actually, they're kind of enjoying it, and uh, and they might even go, uh, they might even go on a little bit longer, you know. But the, as it was, they were they were sitting there a little bit dry, didn't seem to be having much fun, and they've and they've actually gone home. So uh, and, and meanwhile, it's just Rogers, you know. Everything he says is just he, he's saying stuff like, 
Do you know what they call a quarter pounder with cheese in Paris? And people are like, no, I don't know what they call it. And Roger says, a royale with cheese. And everyone is like, really? Do they really call it that? You know, it's, it's, it's amazing. It, people just can't get enough of Brendan Rodgers, um, including the Liverpool supporters uh, who have who started chanting for him. You might have heard it during the match. You know, they've been doing this now for a few games and they've, they've got a chant for Brendan Rodgers, which mainly consists of them screaming his name. Um, Often the best chants are the simplest. Um, I thought to myself, really, is this going to happen again? What? Well, you, you remember the... I mean, I remember there was when Liverpool played Chelsea in the, in the League Cup final in 2005... And there was some Liverpool supporters marching down to the stadium in Cardiff, holding up a uh, a painting, like a framed painting of Rafael Benitez, which they were calling the Rafa Tola. Uh, <laughs> and it was like, yeah, I, th- I think it was it was kind of a joke. It was a sort of funny, but there did seem to be this sort of a hero worshiping. I or, do think Liverpool fans love the cult of the manager. Though mm. it goes back to Shankly, uh, Paisley clearly was a beneficiary of it. He was a very good manager for them. Right through. There's always they, they really seem to get behind their man, which is and there's no harm doing that. But it's a huge. It seems to be a huge deal. That's why we we see all these photos. Dog Leash, obviously, where Brendan Rodgers appears to be hallucinating that uh, Bill Shankly is there. He's having a, <laughs> some kind of, a, uh, of an electric disturbance in his brain, and Bill Shankly has materialised and is always saying something Scottish and grandfatherly, like "almost there, son." Oh yeah. Um, one of my friends really hates this, and uh, so I was I was seeking photos of this type of thing uh, on the internet to to send you know because I thought that you would appreciate a, a Brendan Rogers photograph of uh, you know Bill Shankly or encouraging him or whatever, and found this one from which was obviously from a few years back. I thought it was really interesting. It was a um, it was like a a kind of a cartoon, a stylized sort of image of. Um, a chessboard, and on the chessboard there were Liverpool chess pieces who were actually Liverpool players. You know, like little um, as though as though they were actually carvings. You know, not not sort of lifelike, but you know these Liverpool shirted chess pieces, and looming over the chessboard, much bigger. Obviously, the the, the players are chess piece sized, and looming over it in human portion was. Rafael Benitez, well, or a, a picture of Rafael, stroking his goateed chin as he contemplated the next move he was going to make with these Liverpool shirted chess players. Mm. I thought, really, come on, you know, was that <laughs> that was terrible? You know, that was that, you know, that was not a good. Uh, that's not a good manager-player relation, right well, there. Why not? The idea that the players are chess pieces being moved around the board by an omniscient manager. Is not is not a good model of of football mm. or how a football club should work. That is how Benitez did things, though. It's not how Rogers is doing things, no, and maybe that's more, why. Maybe he's a more emotional man. Yeah, I mean, maybe maybe Rogers or a people person definitely. He's more of a people person. I mean, look, people like to be liked. You know, someone smiles at you, asks how you're doing, sort of touches your face, and, and you know, gives your arm a squeeze. Well, unless, the, you know, some people don't like their face being touched. Apparently, Lionel Messi hates it. He really annoys him. He's like a cat. If you, that's why Mourinho was telling the players, go and stick your finger in his face. Not like, not like the way that he famously did to Villanova. Um, but touch his face, shabby. Just to be getting near Messi, just touch him on the face. 
he really doesn't like it. Yeah. Um, but, you know, Brendan Rodgers, maybe the way that he does it, the way that he carries off with such charm, um, maybe it works, you know. Um, I think that he he is being... I mean, I don't think Rodgers has at any point come forward and, and claimed all the credit for what's happening or really talked in any great depth about how he's moving the pieces around on the chessboard and how that's the reason that they're winning. He has mainly been giving the credit to the players. Oh, yeah. Probably should be. After every match, even... <laughs> one of the first questions he was asked in the interview I saw was, well, the initial reaction, and he said, I thought we were brilliant today, which could seem like self-congratulations, as it maybe it is, really, but... He was pretty quick to talk about how the players... He do, he's very good at that. Immediately. That's true. Whatever the question was, I can't remember the question, but he said, yeah, first thing we, is we were amazing. We were amazing. We were absolutely brilliant. Which is, I guess, what the players would certainly want to hear. Um, so, yeah, I mean, they, they had been very good. I thought uh, it was an interesting game because Suarez, who's you know, reliably excellent, I mean, he did set up the first goal, but didn't have a good game overall and seemed to lose it a bit, was losing the plot. Primarily at Daniel Sturridge... Daniel Sturridge seemed to be the target of most of Suarez's anger, well, and the referee. Um, although the referee went easy on him. I mean, there was this controversy over the so-called dive of Suarez, um, which they showed on much of the day. It seemed to seem to show that his trailing foot had been had had in fact been caught by Dimitrios, but I wasn't sure. I was convinced by that replay. It seemed as though, oh yeah, there you go, proof. But um, I wasn't sure, and it, the fact still remains that. No, essentially no decision was taken by the referee it's a very basic principle that it, either he died and it's not always this clear but that was either a total dive or, or a kick. clear trip and the ref has to make up his mind rather than not sure don't want to send him off I suppose the referee is just saying I'm I just am not quite sure so I'm not going to give anything yeah that's exactly what it is um, yeah and, and then but he did then not give Suarez the penalty for the company kind of pushing him over yep. Uh, which I think probably had something to do with the fact that he hadn't sent him off a few minutes previously. But the main the main thing about it was that this was a uh, this was unusual from Suarez, who was letting the occasion get to him. I thought um, maybe it was just the fact that he was on an early booking. I mean, you could see that the Manchester City players were definitely trying to goad him a little bit when the, on the kickoff at two two, they were they were all up uh, all up about him, and they were clearly I think trying to get him sent off, and very nearly. Very nearly worked. Sturridge again was bad for the, I think, the second game in a row. But the reason that Liverpool ended up winning the game was because Sterling and Coutinho were so good. Um, really had an amazing, uh, amazing performances from the two of them. So positive, um, you know, even a two all to get the ball to keep sort of taking their opponents on. Um, it was fantastic. And the goal that Coutinho scored in the end was a club record goal. They never scored as many as ninety three goals in a in a in a league season before. Even though many of those seasons have had forty two games. So. Um, yeah, pretty amazing. And Manuel Pellegrini, incidentally, I've never seen a referee, uh, a manager rather, be as restrained uh, in circumstances like th- like this. Um, he says, "I thought the referee had a very good game." You know, I, I thought I thought he had a very good game. Uh, it was a clear penalty, but I don't want to talk about the referee. It's not fair to say we lost the game because of the referee. We should have gone on to win a two-two. Was that just failed criticism of his own players? I'm not taking it, the manager here thinking, I'm not taking the easy way out here. I'm going to leave it out that, that really we shouldn't have been relying on the referee there. We just didn't perform. Yeah, well, I think I, I admire what Pellegrini is doing. He's taking responsibility for for the result, for the defeat. I mean, he does criticise company. I mean, this isn't very veiled. He says football is about mistakes too, and Liverpool won the game with a mistake. But maybe it was a mistake to play company, given that, um, maybe he, given that he probably wasn't fit to play. 
maybe the mistakes were made earlier in the season when Manchester City left themselves it turns out very short at the, at the back for I mean they've got Lescott obviously Lescott was there on the bench but he's clearly a player that the manager has no confidence in um, uh, and I'm sure that's a mistake that they're going to look at rectifying in the in the summer um, you were talking though about whether, whether Liverpool are going to be popular winners I don't think they're going to be popular in the slightest bit with the other managers why? because it makes them look bad it makes all of them look bad if Liverpool win you know, I mean, Jose Mourinho's entire strategy this season has been based on if Manchester City win the league, which Mourinho, sizing it up, decided is the only other team that can actually beat us to win the league. Everything that he said has been has been focused on them. You know, has been focused on, uh, oh, how, we're the little horse. And, mm. you know, even Arsenal were, were supposed to be a big horse compared to Chelsea. Um, and obviously Arsenal are, are now yeah, way out of it. He, he was creating... He was getting excuses in early all season, creating an environment in which if they if Chelsea were to somehow pull off a shock league victory it would be possibly be, his greatest triumph. But more than likely thing. they finish second or third or in the Champions League and build on the experience for next year, then have a title run a, a title run. But what you're saying is that Liverpool have come along yeah. and totally exploded. Nobody the idea. expected this. Certainly Mourinho didn't expect this. Yeah. Are you joking? You know, he's too much of a realist to expect something like this to be happening. And he, he hasn't said anything about them and maybe now it's He's trying to think of what it is that he's going to come up with because he's still got a little bit of a chance to to get under the skin, maybe try and affect things. But everything has been about City. So if so, if Liverpool win, it makes him look bad. You know, he's supposed to be the messiah. He's supposed to be the the guy who who wins wherever he goes. It obviously makes Pellegrini look bad. And as for Arsene Wenger, oh, certainly Liverpool winning the title is a disaster for him because it would show that what he has been saying for the last 10 years it's possible it's possible to do it it's possible to win the league while not financially doping as Wenger would would put it although the Bull and Fairness are a little bit financially doped it's just they're starting from such a low base I mean they're financially doped in the sense of they their owners seem to be covering huge losses every year it's just that the the revenues that Liverpool have are not really that big. You know, it's not as though they're they're buying all Arsenal's best players like Man City did for a couple of years, or you know, signing Willian just because Tottenham wanted to sign him, like Chelsea did. Um, you know, they're in. They've got like Sturridge, who Chelsea didn't want, and he's been one of their best players. You know, they they have Coutinho, who's turned into one of their best players, and nobody wanted him. Presumably, the owners are going to get a lot of the kudos for this title win if it happens. Well, they. I mean, John Henry said when when he took over, uh, we have to. Every time we have to spend a dollar, every time we spend a dollar, it has to be wisely. And of course, this immediately made a mockery of the whole thing by buying Andy Carroll for thirty-five million, you know, the most ludicrously overpriced player ever, downing twenty million. Not far off Carroll, actually. Given that Carroll is a little bit better um, in terms of value for money, downing is nearly as bad. Um, uh, Henderson, they took flack for that signing. He's turned out to be, you know, he's mm-hmm. kind of come into his own. Um, I mean, I don't know if you can really give the owners credit. I don't know if you can really give anyone that much credit. I mean, personally, I give Luis Suarez a lot of credit because I think without him, none of this happens. I think he's the one player who... I think he's he's the transformative individual. If any one individual gets credit, it should be him. But, yeah, I mean, what's happening here... To me, it doesn't look as though it's part of a, a cunning plan by John Henry. It's more in the realm of, wow, I got, you know, that's that turned out well. There's no doubt that the... Ferguson, we should probably talk more about this once to see the league's been wrapped up by somebody, but Ferguson's retirement, we knew there'd be ramifications. Everyone was really excited during the summer because there was a totally new landscape now. 
but I don't think anyone predicted Man United and Liverpool to swap places. Yeah, Liverpool to swap places with Manchester United from first to seventh, and then a lot of the other teams to be basically what they were. Yeah, Arsenal kind of also ran Chelsea, Man City underachieving. I mean, if Manchester City don't win the league this year, they've blown another one. Yeah. They very nearly blew the one they did win. They do. I mean, you, you go back at some of the, some of the results they've had. I mean, they lost to Cardiff. Manchester City lost to Cardiff. You know, at the beginning of the season, that's a disaster. You know, um, and those kinds of things. You, we, you mentioned Chelsea there. On, I mean, Chelsea's victory against Swansea. This was real. I mean, if there is anyone who is neutral, uh, truly neutral, and, and there are, there are very few people watching football who are truly neutral. I think, but uh, if it's the choice between Chelsea and Liverpool then it may come down to the fact that this Chelsea team, I mean, yesterday was just such a classic Jose Mourinho-Chelsea performance. And when Mourinho Mourinho sometimes comes in, um, as he did recently when they beat Arsenal 6-0, and he said, I don't understand why it is that nobody loves us, you know? We, everywhere I go, I get the record for points, I usually get the record for goals. Um, Games like that are why. Because this was a, a match in which Swansea had a player sent off, in which the, the entire Chelsea team intervened to try and influence that decision. John Terry uh, says afterwards, um, fair play to Phil, the ref. It was a big decision to make. I thought he made the right one. Credit goes to him for that. Um, John Terry said uh, to Phil out, for me, that's a second yellow card. And Phil said, uh, you know, take it. Or what did he say? Hang on, John. I'm, I'm just, thinking about I'm it. Thinking about it. Um, meanwhile, Mourinho was over at the fourth official working on him. Uh, he was kind of, you know, cowering back a little bit from Mourinho. And at the end, when Gary Monk came over to complain that his player, Chico Flores, had been sent off, and this seemed to him, but as, as Monk said afterwards, the disappointing thing was the ref didn't seem to be about to send him off. And only then, after a significant delay, did he come and produce a second yellow card. And Monk believed that all of the arguing that Chelsea had been doing on the field and on the sideline in that period had influenced the referee's decision. Well, what's interesting about it, aside from Chelsea, as you say, and we'll talk more to Miguel about this, their haranguing, constant and consistent haranguing of referees and uh, fourth officials, which is a strange one because the fourth official isn't actually refereeing the game. So we'll, we'll, we'll get to that. But different refs seem to have different philosophies, even within the same sport, I'm sure. But I remember interviewing Alan Rowland a few years ago and the rugby referee, one of the world's top rugby players, retiring this year. I'm almost, I don't want to get him wrong here, but I'm almost certain that he said, this was not long after he sent Sam Warburton off in the World Cup semi-final yeah. for a tip tackle, which is a hugely controversial decision. You know, I think technically he was probably correct. I thought it was the correct decision, yeah. I remember it. And certainly now, it, there's been more and more publicity around that type of tackle over the last couple of years. I think any time that happens now, um, there generally will be a, a red card, or certainly there's supposed to be. But I'm almost certain that he said around that time to me that the your first instinct is the decision, you know? Some refs, like Phil Dowd, obviously likes to have about a minute and a half to think about it. Yeah. <laughs> but Roland, I'm, I'm pretty sure, said, you, you make the decision within a second and that's it. That's that's what it is. And if the decision is, I don't know, then you go to the, obviously, you go to the TMO, yeah. as you can do in rugby. You don't you have do that luxury. You do the Clattenburg or the Howard Webb. Yeah, but it's, what you see initially is what you've seen and you make the decision based on that. Yeah, I mean, Howard Webb, I think, was again not giving, not giving any penalties uh, over the weekend. He just doesn't give penalties anymore, Howard Webb. He just... I don't know. I don't know whether he just gave away too many penalties, or he needs to, his quota looks bad compared to the other referees, or I mean, he just disagrees with the rule. 
I'm not sure, but he just, <laughs> he just doesn't want to, to do it They're anymore. a little bit harsh, aren't they, on the it's, defender? Every time there's some, a big decision, he just... You know, he's, he's gone to the World Cup. Uh, he could be world famous. I mean, I know he did the last World Cup final. It didn't go that well. But I can't wait to see what happens in the World Cup. You know, when, when teams are confronted with the fact that Hang on, this referee actually isn't going to well, do you anything. you saw what happened. It happened in the last World Cup final. Yeah, well, maybe. <laughs> I suppose we know exactly what's going to happen. Maybe it could happen again. I don't know. Uh, Alan Pardew, incidentally, we mentioned him there uh, getting a bit leery. Um, well, he's he's obviously still a band. You know, he's he, he can go to the stadium now, but um, they, lost, uh, they lost again to Stoke this time. Uh, four defeats in a row without even scoring a goal. Newcastle fans have a Banner saying Pardew is a Muppet, which is what it lacks in creativity, makes up for in bluntness. Um, and Pardew says, I don't think the media in the Northeast helped us this week. I think they whipped it up for whatever reason. The, whatever reason, possibly being that they're banned by the club from the, the club. Um, the Sunday Sun in Newcastle, do uh, over front page, we're so sorry, with a picture of Alan Pardew. Uh, there, as Pardew blames the local press for fans' anger after the disastrous form in 2014. This is a bit like remember that Western Mail, uh, w- actually that in same Welsh. Welsh Welsh semi-final that we just mentioned with Sam Warburton. You know their famous front page, which was just all covered in writing, tear-stained writing from the uh, all you know all, describing all the feelings that they had on being knocked out. I remember that. Yeah. As Pardew blames the local press for fans' anger after the disastrous form in 2014. Your Sunday Sun. Uh, this is the Newcastle Sunday Sun. It's not the same as the Murdoch Sun. Um, would like to apologise for losing 3-0 to Sunderland, 4-0 to Manchester United, 4-0 to Southampton, 4-0 to Spurs, 3-0 to Chelsea, 3-0 to Everton, 2-0 to Man City, 1-0 to Fulham, 1-0 to Stoke, 1-0 to West Brom, and 2-1 to Cardiff. Oh, and for headbutting David Myler too. Say, Hang on, the newspaper were apologising on behalf of Alan Pardew. Yeah, I think they're being sarcastic. I don't, think, I don't think they really feel sorry for that. I think the point they're making there is that it's not really their fault that uh, Pardew, the fans seem to have turned up. You know, around. Clive Woodward says that when he was involved in football for that season or two, yeah. two managers rang him up and said, if you're looking for any advice or anything, any help at all, you can count on me. Arsene Wenger? Yeah. And Alan Pard's Pardew. Really? Yeah. Said Pardew was a total legend. Well, and that was his personal experience. So Alex Ferguson didn't ring him up? No. I'm almost certain Wenger was the other one, but definitely Pardew was one of the two. That's interesting. Wenger is Wenger's a guy who, who has a reputation of not really socialising much with the other managers. No, he's, well, he's not talking about going for class. He's talking about hardened professional advice here, as opposed to Maybe he figures this guy. Yeah. I mean, Pardew, of course, forgot the help Ferguson gave him, by the way. I don't know if you remember that quote, Owen. No. That was when, uh, I can't remember, what did Newcastle do to Man United? Maybe they got a penalty at Old Trafford or something. <laughs> what a match, something um, like that. And, and Pardew had said something which irritated Ferguson, so Ferguson said, he forgets the help I gave him, by the way. And everyone was left to wonder <laughs> just to what extent Pardew's career was just Ferguson pulling the puppet strings. That's the end of Kennedy's report on sport. Hairdryers is a metaphor for the current of hot air generated by a furious blast of temper. The hairdryer with which uh, Alex Ferguson was famously associated. He threw a hairdryer, I think, at David Beckham. Oh, no, he threw a hairdryer at David Beckham. Uh, in the, is that right? No, 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 no. Jonathan Wilson joins us now to talk, Jonathan, about Liverpool, where they're at now after the victory yesterday. And uh, I guess... Stephen Jarrett in particular, we might use him as a starting point given the emotion that he showed in the immediate aftermath of the game. Does Stephen Jarrett deserve to win the league this year? 
I'm not sure anybody deserves to win the league. I don't think anybody's got, got some moral right. But, you know, he's, the fact he, he's been a one-club man, OK, there are times when it looked like he might leave. There is something in the modern age when players are so mercenary. Quite nice about a player who's stayed at a club for, for that long. Um, the fact he hasn't won it, and he clearly has been one of the great players of the Premier League era, there will be something fitting about him winning. Whether he deserves it, I'm not sure. And you, you then get to, I think, quite an interesting point, which is what means more, him winning it with the team that you know, he's been with for years, um, or somebody you know, coming along to a team who's won it six times in the last ten years or something and just added another one. And I'd suggest this probably outweighs quite a lot if he does go on to win it. I mean, you could see that uh, the occasion had really got into the heads of the Liverpool players. I mean, it was a big occasion with the crowd. Uh, Rodgers was saying afterwards, you can't buy that kind of support. I think it's true. Uh, you need to go without winning the league for nearly a quarter of a century before your fans are going to get that excited, no matter what uh, club you're at. But do you think that type of support really makes that much difference to the home team or even the away team? Because it didn't look to me as though Manchester City were intimidated at all. I think it can do, particularly in the first sort of 15 or 20 minutes. I mean, I, I agree with you, City, clearly, I mean, even before half-time, it, it had come back into the game. But I think that sort of Liverpool surge of the first 20, 30 minutes, that was at least partly conditioned by the crowd, this sort of sense of expectation. And then when they get the early goal, which they've got a habit of doing this season, that just builds the momentum. And you could almost see City sort of thinking, well, you know, how, how do we stop this? It's just wave after wave of attack. So, I mean... Is it absolutely decisive? No. Does it add an extra 5-10%? Probably, yeah. I think it does. Is Certainly it po- yeah. early on. And I think teams go into Anfield, and there's a point Gary Neville made, that you sort of know that the first 20-30 minutes is about survival for you. You're not looking to take Liverpool on. You're looking to, to hold them off. And then once the game settled down, maybe you can, you can take them on. But that first, first sort of quarter, third of a game, is Liverpool's to do with what they can. Is it possible, Jonathan, that Manchester City weren't conditioned to play that survival game for the first half an hour we know how attacking they've been and maybe that's the best use of the resources that they have but that maybe it's not so much that philosophically they are against defending when they need to but maybe just they haven't had enough practice of it over the course of the season so they weren't really prepared for what Liverpool threw at them I think there's probably an element of that yeah I think uh, also the fact that company clearly wasn't fully fit and it's very harsh, I think, after the season he's had to, to point the finger just at him, but he, he was at fault for all three Liverpool goals. So the fact he wasn't quite as decisive as he, as he normally is um, yeah, clearly uh, undermined them. And Yaya Toure getting the, the injury so early as well just disrupted them. He had two key players in, in that spine. So, yeah, I think partly the occasion, the crowd, partly the fact that you know, survival isn't their natural game, and then partly the fact they just weren't at their best. And it took them a while to, to sort of find their feet. Maybe there was a sense in which Manuel Pellegrini might do things differently if he had the chance to do so. Uh, I imagine that one of the things he might consider doing from the beginning in this rerun would be to play James Milner, who really w- was a hugely influential player once he came on in the second half. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, I think Navas, although he, you know, his pace is obviously valuable on the break, uh, I thought he was peripheral in the first half. And Milner, I think, is just a much, much better player than people give him credit for. I mean, he, he was involved in the build-up to, to both City goals. Um, but he, he also helped keep... Um, just he, he became a third player at the back of midfield, so he just sort of helped block up that area, helped keep Liverpool you know, slightly quieter than they had been. And, and I think he, you know, he does a sort of in-between role very, very well. He's, he's not an out-and-out defensive player. 
he's not an attacking wide man, but he just sort of he he does both. He's a more complete player, and therefore doesn't really stand out in in either either category. Why do you think he does struggle to get um, to get the kind of respect that that maybe he deserves? Because I mean, number one, he's an England international, and usually England internationals. Um, I, I don't. I don't think they usually get shortchanged by the by the press, by the public, in terms of um, you know respect for their performances. You know, he's he's won uh, the title with Manchester City. I think he's still the youngest player ever to play. Uh, I don't know if it's the top division of English football or, or or is it to score in the top division of English football. I remember he broke Wayne Rooney's record. So clearly, an exceptional talent from a young age. I don't really understand why he isn't more celebrated. Yeah, I think he's a youngest player to, to score at the top, top flight. I think James Vaughan of Everton took the record because Milner did it against Sunderland on Boxing Day which is why I remember it, playing for Leeds and he took Rooney's record as, as you say. But it, I, I think there's almost a sense that because he came through so so early there's sort of a, um, there's a I think people don't realise how old he is. That uh, There's a sense that maybe he's, he's past his best but actually he's probably just coming into his peak. Uh, but I think it's the fact that he's sort of a 7 out of 10 in all departments player you can't say, oh, he's a great aggressive holding player. You can't say, oh, he's a great winger who takes people on and gets crosses in. He doesn't score hundreds of goals. He doesn't play brilliant passes. He just does a lot of things very competently. And I think the, the thing that um, cannot be shown by, by stats is his positional sense. And his positional sense is incredibly good. And so something like Steven Gerrard, I think, I mean, I don't want don't to start criticising Gerrard today after, after how well he played yesterday and everything. But the thing that he gets away with sometimes I think his position sense isn't good, and the stats don't pick that up. And it's quite hard to to recognise that unless you're actually at the game watching it. Milner, I think his position sense is excellent, and he doesn't get any credit for that because it's a really, really hard thing to see unless all you do in the game is just watch what he's doing. Yeah, if Milner was the bright young thing at one stage of English football, I think it's Raheem Sterling. Now, there are there are probably a few uh, candidates for that sort of uh, a role within English football, but certainly Sterling, even I think Jonathan, in, in the way that he has embraced his task in that team. I mean, he's playing with Luis Suarez, who doesn't always look like the easiest guy to play. You make a mistake as a fellow striker at Suarez and you're going to hear all about it. Sturridge is another guy, Brendan Rodgers spoke about this recently. They're both soloists. He's playing in, in, in behind them and looking for ways to interact with them. And he doesn't seem at all cowed by either by their reputations, by the occasion, by pretty much anything. Uh, maybe I'm over-hyping Sterling a little bit here, but he seems pretty amazing. Yeah, I agree. And the fact that he can, he can play comfortably on the wing or in the middle... And he can play either wing. You know, he's played in the left this season as well as the right. Uh, you know, the last sort of six weeks, two months, he, he started playing at the peak of a diamond in midfield. I think that says a lot for his um, game understanding, for his tactical intelligence. Uh, so I, I think, I mean, his development this season, I think, has been remarkable. I think you've got to give Rodgers great credit um, for his coaching. That, that he, you know, he's got a player who you know, has all these natural attributes of, of pace and, and, and technical ability, very quick feet. Um, but he's also, yeah, I think the coach has to take credit for giving him that, that positional awareness that he can play in a variety of roles. And you can imagine, maybe the comparison is not, not quite fair, but if you think of something like Aaron Lennon when he came through, playing wide on the right, great pace, and couldn't really cross the ball, game intelligence wasn't great. And, you know, well, how long later, eight, nine years later, he's still the same. Whereas Sterling, in the space of, of eight, nine months, has developed into a much more rounded player um, and, and a player who you start to think actually he, he could be the standout young player at the World Cup not just in terms of England but in terms of everybody Well part of it I think has to do Jonathan with the fact that he isn't automatically put on the wing because he has the qualities that you mentioned that, it, that those being um, speed dribbling ability foot speed and also not being very big I mean in the past 
that guy is literally every single time, 10 times out of 10, he's playing on the wing. Yeah, no, well, that's absolutely true. And you look at it's an election to Kagawa at United. Uh, where do you accommodate him? Oh, let's, let's stick him out on the left because we can't really work out what to do with him in the middle. And you know, we were talking before about um, City not being used to playing that survival game. I also think Ture and Fernandinho are absolutely terrified by suddenly finding a bloke running at them really quickly because that just doesn't happen down the middle of the pitch. And that happened um, at United early in the season. One of the reasons that Liverpool were so comfortable against United was, was Sterling just charging down the middle. People used to playing in the English league in front of the back four don't have to deal with that. And it, it's, you know, I, I think you, could, you almost see the panic there. So I, I, think, yeah, I think he's been absolutely vital. I think the other player who's been vital... It's Coutinho. I mean, I wrote a piece where it looked like Liverpool might sign Mkhitaryan last, last summer and said if they got Mkhitaryan, he was exactly the player they needed to turn them into potential title winners. And what I didn't realise was they already had a player like that at the club. I didn't think, I didn't realise Coutinho was going to come through and be as good as, 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 as he has been. Um, and, yeah, OK, they still had a bit of luck in terms of injuries and things. And, um, but, but you yeah, know, I, I thought that was what they were lacking and it turns out they, they already had him there. I've seen it written that... Um you know, Brazil must have a pretty decent midfield if Coutinho isn't going to go to the World Cup, and it looks as though he's got pretty much no chance of uh, going there. Would you Would you reckon that's a good comment on how strong, how strongly Brazil are likely to challenge for their home World Cup? Coutinho because it's not good enough to get in the team. Well, I think to be fair to them, I mean, if, if you're if you're Scolari, Coutinho probably wasn't wasn't even a player particularly on your radar. There's plenty of attacking Brazilian midfielders to look at. Does, um, does Scolari's radar not encompass the greatest league in the world? <laughs> Well, I think if he was looking at this league, at the start of the season, he'd been looking at Oscar. Um, and, you know, Cucina's only really sort of the last, what, six months of being generous, three months maybe, that he's really come through. So given Brazil's strength in that area, I think it's entirely logical that he's a player who's on the periphery of Scolari's thoughts. And we also know one of Scolari's great strengths is the sort of familial bond that he builds with his players. And that, you know, uh, back in 2002, I was everybody spoke about was although they had a terrible, terrible qualifying campaign, this sort of real togetherness they have. And David Luiz has been saying that about this squad that they've he's never been in, in an international setup where they have such a strong bond. Well, you don't retain that bond by suddenly introducing a player because of three months good form, six months before the World Cup. Okay, Jonathan, brilliant stuff as always. Thank you. Cheers. Thanks. Yeah, I needn't have worried too much about overhyping Raheem Sterling, considering Jonathan took that baton and ran with it Ken saying he could be the standout young player of the World Cup yeah not um, just the England team well I, I think the goal that he scored the other day was, fun, was absolutely fantastic incidentally he mentioned that, that he doesn't necessarily play that well with Suarez I think or rather that Suarez is not the easiest player to play with but I think for Sterling he is um, they seem to suit each other very well of the nine league goals that Sterling has scored so far eight of them are set up by Suarez yeah in, um, in a footballing sense they do I just mean that if you're what age is Sterling now 18 19, 19? And you're getting roared at all the time by this legendary player. Mm. We even saw Andy Cole was far from a 19-year-old callow youth when he joined Manchester United, yet people, there's an assumption that he was somewhat intimidated by Cantona. Oh, he was. Yeah, but the same thing. Uh, Maybe it's not quite as... I don't think Suarez has any contempt or anything like that for for Sterling. I just think that he reacts in a hot-headed fashion to his strike partners all the time with Sturridge. <laughs> but you can see Sturridge looking at him screaming back at him. Sterling doesn't really scream back so much, but he does... Probably you're right. Maybe that's, it's, he's, it says more about the quality of Sterling's character that he can just redouble his efforts when he gets shouted at as mm. opposed to what a lot of 18, 19-year-olds would be doing, setting him to F off and 
yeah. leave him alone. I mean, what, I think what he's done is great. I mean, remember that the first half of the season was a write-off for Sterling. He didn't, he didn't really do anything. He only started coming into the team, I think, in sort of late November, December, uh, having more or less disappeared. Uh, and this was after he'd, you know, he had a couple of issues off the field. He he was up in court on charges that were dropped. Um, you know, so it hasn't, uh, you got, you got to expect with a player of that age that he's not going to be able to play like this consistently for a long time. I mean, I'm sure next season he'll have another another dip. I mean, the whole thing next season, Liverpool are going to be in the Champions League now, but they don't have the squad to play in the Champions League. You know, they that the squad as it's as currently constituted will disintegrate under the strain of playing. Well, they have a better Champions squad than Everton do. Everton well, Everton, Everton are going to Everton make the Champions League. You know, they, everyone knows that Everton are going to have some are going to find it very difficult if they do get in there, especially given that at the moment. But how, well, how know, the squad Lukaku's on squad. If the squad is on, on strong loan. enough to win, sorry to cut across you, but uh, maybe the Everton point was taking it away from the initial argument. That is that surely if Liverpool have a squad strong enough to win the Premier League. Mm. They have a squad good enough to at least be competitive in the Champions. Well, League. the the point. Not that I want to necessarily be somebody who who. Um, does Jose Mourinho's job for him. But the point that he's been making all season is that it is an advantage not to play in Europe. Now, it's not an advantage not to be in the Champions League, clearly. Mm. I mean, that's that's you want to be there and you've got a better chance of, of getting good players and persuading your best players to stick with you if you're in that competition. That's a competition that's the highest level of the game. But from the point of view of a team that's trying to win the league, it is a huge advantage not to have to play huge games in midweek, not to have to travel all the time, to be able to pick... Liverpool have been able to pick their best team all the time and they haven't had to worry about the players getting tired or, you know, uh, you know, it's not it's not even just the physical exertions involved so much as the disruption uh, of all the moving around and uh, the, the psychological fatigue from having to concentrate on so many more... You know, I mean, because the Champions League matches are big. It's not like the League Cup where you can rest half your team. You know what I mean? These are big matches, and they kind of... It's difficult to... Liverpool have been able to focus everything on the league. I think it's... it's they've, ju- they've got just the right squad size to do it. But they will. If they're injuries. Premier League champions and in the Champions League, they'll have a... Presumably get a couple of marquee signings during the summer, but we'll talk more about them. Uh, well, well, let's move on to Chelsea now, actually, because we're joined by Miguel Delaney, who was at Swansea to see Chelsea keeping the show on the road. Miguel, just about they didn't exactly cover, this, cover themselves in glory, though. It's fair to say. Um, no, they were they were quite laboured, uh, but it was a strange game. Um, and I, I, in terms of the title race, you're you're right that you know even though they're only two points off the top now, it's just there's this kind of layer of complexity and in which you can't quite see them doing it. And it's quite interesting what that result does because, you know, it's Liverpool's title to lose, yet Chelsea have it in their hands against Liverpool, but not against City. But City need a favour off Chelsea. So it is quite wrapped around. But, I mean, I mean, the, this game almost kind of displayed the difference because while Liverpool and City, despite yesterday's result, have enough firepower to pretty much blow anyone away, you do just worry whether quite a Chelsea have another blank in them against a lesser team. It's been an issue a few times this season, and it was almost an issue yesterday. Although in saying that, they did create about five chances that, that they should have scored before Bah eventually got a pretty lucky goal because of the deflection. Yeah, and it's not even so much the football itself. When, when I say they didn't cover themselves in glory, I'm just moralising here, really, <laughs> Miguel. But it's, it's, the badgering of the, of, the, of the referee and the officials, John Terry afterwards saying, oh, then just if, if 
people weren't following it essentially a Swansea player was sent off after a pretty delayed decision by Phil Dowd which involved a chat with John Terry and a lot of other remonstrations Terry said afterwards I just said it's a second yellow for me fair play to Phil the ref it was a big decision to make I thought he made the right one you know, I, 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 maybe I'm, I'm being a little bit sanctimonious here I think what strikes about it is more so um, the kind of the blatant honesty about what was actually happening I mean I remember when I went to uh, Spurs Chelsea earlier this season with a one all in October or so, and because the the press box Spurs is right beside the benches, you can see and hear everything that goes on, and the fourth official in particular is right beside all the journalists. So I mean, during that game, it was amazing just how systematic it was. More than any other team I've seen have at Spurs this season where you can actually get a proper look. But you know, <laughs> the Chelsea bench were almost taking it in turns to rotate. Who was going to go up and uh, point out issues to uh, to the fourth official in a very insistent and persistent style? I remember kind of Steve Holland almost going through a list of issues he had, what was happening on the pitch. Um, it's, uh, there have been occasions even when you can, you've seen him be much more, um, how to put it, uh, uproarious to uh, to the officials from the bench. And then obviously kind of what happened on the pitch yesterday was all part of it. It's all this constant badgering of uh, of the referees and his assistants to, to basically influence the game their way. And, and Terry, like, <laughs> almost the most humorous part of it, if you could call it humorous, was uh, uh, Dowd's just a comment to Terry before we could see it from the TV. But uh, I'm thinking about it, John. <laughs> yeah. Um, I saw uh, during the match yesterday that the Sports Illustrated correspondent Grant Wall was among those mystified by why Chelsea did this. He said, why, why are Chelsea doing this? Um, or why, I think maybe he was saying, why do people complain about it? But the point he was making was, that guy doesn't make the call. Um, why do you think it is that Chelsea uh, seem to view working on the fourth official as an important part of their game plan as maintaining uh, a line across the back four? Well, ultimately, I think it, it, it does fit it out. There's going to be dialogue. Um, I, I remember hearing an anecdote about, about Gary Neville playing... Uh, <laughs> playing a friendly game or it was some sort of exhibition or a testimony or something like that and in the friendly game he was in the referee's ear throughout and kind of and kind of someone said to him you know what, what are you what are you doing Gary it's just a small game like this and he responded laughing how do you think we got so many penalties and decisions at Old Trafford for so many years and that's it's all about just basically and you can particularly see it with Mourinho it's all about this kind of just subtle or not so subtle psychological conditioning ultimately at some point it will give you an extra 1%, 2% decisions in, in your favour. And that can make some sort of difference over a, to- over a season. You know, it's not, it's not exactly um, pure, but then uh, who, whoever said Mourinho or a lot of these kind of title-chasing teams were anything but absolutely pragmatic. Yeah, I mean, I can see why Mourinho is so keen to give the fourth official a little TV screen and decision-making powers. Yeah, uh, that could that, that could really change uh, the outlook for him. But I wonder, though, when you see uh, something like that, why are the managers actually allowed to get at the fourth official? Because the way the way it is, he's essentially there as... Um, I don't know if the idea is specifically that he is a lightning rod, that they go and uh, attack him or, 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 let's say, have dialogue with him. Uh, as opposed to invading the pitch or, or screaming at the referee from the sideline. But, uh, you know, it's given that some teams evidently try to systematically influence uh, the officials and the fourth official is obviously the one most often. Why is there not some kind of physical separation? Of, well, I of, suppose the one thing is, I mean, 
it's, it's another one of these things in football where because of the nature of the fourth official's job, there's going to be a spillover that you can't really control. I mean, because the fourth official has to talk to the benches during the game. Anyway, that's ostensibly what he's, one of the reasons he's there. So, you know, like with so many issues in football, like tackling, diving, there becomes this kind of grey area, which obviously teams, and particularly Mourinho teams, will look to exploit to, to the maximum possible. Yeah. Uh, Pellegrini obviously losing at Anfield yesterday took the very un-Mourinho step of waiting to shake hands with all the Liverpool players as they came off. I don't know if he was just trying to make them think that they'd already won the title and uh, and they could pretty much put their feet up at this stage. But um, he had said something. He obviously doesn't usually say that. He doesn't go in for the kind of Mourinho aggro uh, usually. But he had said before that game that it would be very disappointing to everybody if Chelsea were to win the league. Um, big teams should play like big teams. Um, you know, Chelsea don't score enough goals, they don't attack enough and so on. I know that Mourinho still isn't uh, actually speaking to the press, but that is the kind of thing that does uh, does wind him up a lot. Yeah, it, it, it was quite surprising, um, especially as you say, because, well, I, I actually don't think Pellegrini is quite the kind of calm man he, he puts himself across in that sense. I think the, there has been a few snipes during the season, obviously nothing like to Mourinho's level. But, um, I think he's been pretty restrained, you know, given the given the circumstances. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, but it's actually it's, it is quite strange to make a kind of a football comment like that. I mean, it's you know it's it's very explicit criticism of of, of a team. And um, Mourinho himself, as you said, he, he still hasn't done media in the last two days. Now he didn't do his Friday press conference. He didn't do um, yesterday. Now the reason we were told yesterday was well from uh, someone in the Chelsea camp was that. Uh, he was afraid of what he might say after the Aston Villa uh, fine, or after, sorry, the fine he got for the Villa game a few weeks ago. Uh, you, you do wonder whether there's a few, a few more elements to it. He might end up uh, blurting out something in praise of Demba Ba, who keeps saving him with uh, crucial goals. <laughs> well, yes. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> actually, well, in regards to the Demba Ba thing, I, I mean, there is probably an argument that he is... Um, Long term, he's maybe not the right option for a club like Chelsea. Although I, I think it's use, it's always used to have someone like that on the bench. But you could almost wonder whether, even if Mourinho doesn't consider him good enough in the long term, he can have that kind of Christopher Ray effect in their season. Like, yeah, you know, I mean, Ray never had much of a career at Arsenal beyond beyond basically that run in ninety seven, ninety eight. When I think he got three goals and three different one nil wins. You know, it is a type of wild card that can make a difference, especially for a team that, as Pellegrini suggested really does struggle to... Uh, like it's, it's one of the kind of odd anomalies of Chelsea's season that they've been so good in big games, but any time a team kind of shuts down a bit, they're so laboured and don't really have much to, to open them up. Not at all. And uh, I watched um, Petr Cech doing the media duties um, for on, on Match of the Day 2 last night, and he said, well, you know, we, we probably should have scored a couple more. We had good counter-attacks and we should have finished them off. And you're thinking... Counterattacks, though you're playing against an awful team who have only ten players on the field, you should be inventive enough, surely, yeah. not to have to rely on somehow sucking them out and then counterattacking them. Uh, yeah, exactly, and that's, and that's the thing when you when you go down to these four, last four games as well, because you'd even see it yesterday. Whereas against those sort of teams, Liverpool and City have pretty much been blown them away, like you know a few goals. Here, Chelsea, like you can see it throughout the game, going into the last twenty minutes, they're always in danger of some late counterattack. And like I think it was about three minutes from the end, it was just you know in what seemed an innocuous Swansea cross that bounced in front of Czech and kind of just over the the the, uh, the far corner of the, of the goal, uh, and like you, you feel that I mean 
that's a danger that Liverpool and City aren't really going to have because eventually they just have it in them to score that that bit more. Yeah. So I think it's, it's going to it's going to be. I think Chelsea's games in particular, actually, even though there's all this emotion about Liverpool, understandably because of the weight and because of all the dynamics to it. But I think in terms of the actual matches. Chelsea's games could be nervier because of the kind of minimalist nature of them. Yeah, I know that Mourinho is being quiet at the moment, but I'm pretty sure that isn't going to last. And he is going to be up against Liverpool, I think, in nearly just under two weeks. And this is going to be a big match uh, to decide, I suppose, the future of the title. John Terry said that Liverpool's win was the result that Chelsea wanted. Um, but now Mourinho's going to have to go to Anfield. I'm sure he's going to think of something to say about Brendan Rodgers. Now, the only thing that he's been able to say so far this season about Liverpool is they don't have to play European games and it's a big advantage, yeah. which is, which is by his standards, pretty late. But he loves Brendan Rodgers. Yeah, I think that uh, there is an issue with Mourinho there that I think it, it, when he does genuinely like someone, you think he seems more, he seems more reluctant. Uh, well, more maybe not completely reluctant, but more reluctant to get... As uh, as spiteful as he can. So you think personal loyalty is is <laughs> is keeping Mourinho in check here? Because I, I mean, the question I was going to ask is, what do you think he's going to throw at Brendan Rodgers? I mean, let's try and anticipate, uh, anticipate rather the master. Uh, see if we can if we can uh, see what his line of attack is going to be. Because I'm sure there's going to be one. I mean, he can't just let Brendan Rodgers off because uh, they used to work together. I mean, he does think so much of Louis van Gaal. And before the 2010 Champions League final, there was was nothing really like that. He was kind of all very respectful. Now, I suppose the one thing you could say about that was it was a one-off game. It wasn't part of this kind of wider context of the season. And you got the feeling that uh, Chelsea, or sorry, that Inter were the better team than Bayern at the time. Whereas now, you know, it does seem like Chelsea are going to have to try and do a lot to kind of upend Liverpool, as it were. Um, so he, yeah, he could go for Suarez. <laughs> he, he's ha- he's had a few hints that before, you know, when he when he described Suarez. Well, he didn't name him, but he talked about how if you want the king of the divers, uh, go go, you know where to go, and the, the implication was pretty clear. Yep. Well, we'll see, Miguel. Great stuff. Thank you. No problem, lads. Is it not written into Jose Mourinho's contract and others that they actually have to do media? Appearances. Ferguson seemed to get away with it. It seems that in the Champions League, UEFA are particularly strict on it, but maybe the Premier League need to put the foot down a little bit more and say, guys, we're selling your... Well, you're supposed to be helping us sell this product here. Yeah. So get out and talk. Well, he's supposed to talk after the match, uh, certainly. Um, I mean, he doesn't have to do his own press conference, but like, you know, he... But even the interviews, the TV interviews, for example. Uh, yeah, he, he, he should really be doing that. Um, but for whatever reason, he didn't want to. I mean... It was a suggestion that he didn't want to talk ahead of this game because he knew that everyone would be talking about the Champions League draw, which had been on an hour or two before his usual time of his press conference. And he didn't want to be talking about the Champions League when Chelsea had to go to Swansea and beat them. But the idea that he's afraid of what he might say, this is the biggest manipulator of the media that we've almost ever yeah, seen so in, in this, English football. In this case, he didn't want to give the media anything to talk about other than Liverpool, okay, yeah. uh, Manchester City, and certainly not to be... For, for the, because they would have been asking him about the Chelsea match against Atletico, about Thibaut Courtois, about all of this kind of stuff, and maybe he felt. But you know, it's it's impossible to it's difficult to second guess him. I mean, he's he's definitely got some seem dubi- evil plan in mind. <laughs> you seem dubious about the idea that he loves Brendan Rodgers so much that he will refuse to 
pour on the usual. Uh, I just I don't know if he loves anyone that much. I mean, Villas Boas, you know, Villas Boas was like his his coaching son. But they fell out. Yeah, but you know, I suppose you, you you're going to fall out in the end uh, with just a, uh, a being as competitive as Jose Mourinho. Well, it's a brilliant weekend of sport, and if you want to listen to the first show we put out today, you can hear all about the Masters and also the Allianz League semi-finals and the final is going to be between Dublin and Derry surprisingly enough this year in the meantime thanks very much for listening to Second Captains Football at the Irish Times check us out on Twitter at secondcaptainsfacebook.com forward slash secondcaptains thank you Ken thanks Owen we'll chat to you soon take care Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.